Good morning, everybody. All right, just a review from last week. I got a nice little poem from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer being uh, kind of a well-known 20th century martyr, German Lutheran guy. He wrote a very nice poem while he was in prison titled, Who Am I? And I think it does a great job of reviewing what we did last week. Um, well, let's, uh, so he wrote, the, he wrote this from prison. I'm just going to read it. Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my wardens freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command, typo, sorry. Who am I? They also tell me, I bore the days of misfortune equally, smiley, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptible, woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. So uh, it's a great poem. Uh, on, on multiple levels, but how it relates to last week was the fundamental point that we don't decide who we are. God decides. And when he decides who we are, it is always more than what we think we are, or who we are. And we'll see that today in our teaching. Also, um, the, the fact is, is that Without listening to God, the answers to the question of who am I are, are uh, pretty frightening. And, you know, either they are flattery, like the uh, beginning of the poem, or they're despair. But both of them are untrue. So the first part of the poem talks about him. Remember, he's writing from prison. Okay. So he is not like a squire from his country house even though they tell him that he looks like one. Um, He speaks freely with his wardens. Of course, that makes no sense because he's in jail. He's not free. So whether you, I mean, so he he can pretend that he's this one thing uh, when he's not. And then, being honest with himself, he, he sees how contemptible he is and how despair his situation is. But that's not true either. So both of those are not true. Um, What's true is that he is is God's. And, of course, God sets him free from his sin and from the attempt to decide who he is. And so when God tells us who we are, both as a woman, as a man, male, female, it is always more than, than what we imagine, or what we observe in the world. And so we always take hope in that. That is primarily understood in our baptism, when Jesus rips open the clouds and says, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. That's the same thing he says to each one of us in our baptism, and then that defines who we are. Um, Always living in relationship to Jesus. So with that said, then let's, uh, so we're just going to kind of go through the, uh, the document. We're not going to stick super close to it because what's life without tangents? Um, 
And uh, the fact is, is I had too much to say, and I really couldn't boil it down. So we'll see what happens. All right. Um, so, so the document, there's, there's the two first sections. The first section is really kind of why in the world uh, John Paul is writing such a document. And it, it really has to do with the fact that um, what we discussed last week was the church hasn't done a great job of uh, answering the question, who am I? Or, or uh, Last week we had two questions. Uh, what does it mean to be human? And then what does it mean, uh, not with that understanding of what it means to be human, how do we live a life that is, is kind of to the fullest? Um, yeah, I can't remember if I said this last week, but um, with, you know, within kind of the Christian world, apologetics is always, we're kind of trying to make a defense or the case for God's existence and who he is. And I think that, I mean, those are, those are great questions. We should ask those questions and answer those questions. But I think there's another very important question, and that was, what does it mean to be human? Or Steve Bonhoeffer asks, who am I? That is uh, a very important question. And the answer for, for each one of us, as I already said, is the answer is, who am I? Our identity is always in relationship to, to another, to, more specifically to Christ. So with that said, in the first part of the document, John Paul just says, um, he starts with Christ because Christ fully reveals man to him. Now, again, just to reiterate, man, when he writes man, he's meaning male and female. Genesis 1, he made man in his image, male and female. So, uh, you might see that, you know, man to him or herself. You're like, what in the world, what does that mean? It, we're we're uh, redefining words according to the Bible. Um, not redefining. We're uh, applying definitions. Yes, okay. Uh, anyways, makes uh, his or her supreme calling clear. So when we start with Christ, Christ reveals himself to us, and by revealing himself to us, also reveals who we are and our station in life. And of course, Christ being Savior for each one of us, those callings can be multifaceted and you know, different for each one of us. Which I think I, I think we'll, we'll actually talk about later on, kind of the uh, the fact uh, that there is this um, kind of robust, multifaceted reality that we live in as the body of Christ. Um, but even though there's one head, it's in the Bible. You can read it, First uh, Corinthians twelve. Okay. So, but so really, the kind of the more of the the the, uh, the meaty part of the document is in part two, and John Paul starts with uh, the mother of God, woman, mother of God, Theotokos, and Galatians four four, which I think is uh, really a, an important verse. Now, as I already confessed in the chapel, I I don't know where any of my Bibles are. So, if you find a Bible <laughs> lying around the church that looks like it's, you know, kind of used more than, like, I mean, all the ones that we have here in class are, like, pretty nice. Hey, it might be mine. I have a black journal, journaling Bible, too. Journaling Bible somewhere. I should. I did not. I also lost my hymnal. My name is on my hymnal, though, so... My ordination dates on my hymnal too. I feel I feel really bad about that. Yeah, it's memorized. Exactly. Learn by heart, I mean. So Galatians four four, uh, you know, I think I mainly summarize it here. When the fullness of time came, uh, Jesus was born, born of a woman. Born of woman. Woman. Yeah, not a woman. That's important. That's really, uh, it's in the Bible, it's, there's no indefinite article, born of woman, which, of course, is reminiscent of John and, of course, Genesis 3.15. Um, but, it, you know, and I think in the document he makes a special, John Paul II makes a special note of, like, he didn't use the word Mary uh, on purpose because um, this is kind of a universal statement. It's maybe, I mean, I think if you use the word Mary, I think you could still make the same point, but anyways, um, for those of us who aren't named Mary, I think it's helpful. But for those who are named Mary, it's really special. <laughs> uh, 
All right, anyways, so what, what's important about this is uh, starting with this point, which I've never really thought about was, I, I guess I kind of thought about it, but maybe not in this, this uh, kind of application, is that this event is the turning point of, of man's history, all of our history. So this, this point is the most meaningful point in all of history, even more than the beginning. Which, of course, for us who think linear, seems odd. The beginning is always at the beginning. But with Jesus, the, be- the beginning can be in the middle. Krista. Pastor, it was only um, uh, from the Catholic uh, standpoint. But um, there was always that uh, uh, this Paul, this, uh, this Pope, loved uh, Mary more than Jesus. Well, that's the critique, yep. Uh, and so that he said, even in... On his banner, he had um, Totus Tuo, I am all yours, mm-hmm. instead of uh, Christ and uh, the... Uh, right. You know. Yeah, John, John Paul, I, I didn't bring it up, but now that you brought it up, Krista, uh, John Paul, was, uh, he, he really loved Mary, um, but I, I don't want that us to dissuade the words on the page, because what he writes is very important for us, because he starts with the Bible. Um, which for many of us think is kind of, well, like Roman Catholics, they don't like the Bible, they like church tradition more than the Bible. Um, that's actually, you know, that's, that's kind of a simplistic way of understanding things. So we want to make sure that we stick with the words on the page. Um, and so regardless of what John Paul's piety was towards Mary, we, we can't let that influence, uh, because then, you know, that, that logic doesn't really work, because then we would, can't listen to Luther because he hated Jews. Okay, well, then that's not going to be helpful. Then we can kind of rationalize things away. Let's just simply stick with the, the, the text, and we'll, we'll get with it. Because also, we would have to do that even with Lutheranism, and that's going to be kind of the point of why Mary is very important for us, because the early confessional writings of Lutherans really love Mary. Um, to the point where of course, uh, Theotokos, the mother of God, is a, is a statement that we believe in as Lutherans. If you don't, Well, you can't be a Christian and not believe that. So... FYI. Um, and, then, um, and then also, too, most Lutherans all the way up to the 20th century believe Mary was always virgin, ever virgin. I mean, that, that's very, I mean, that's just kind of normal, which, of course, for many of us are like, what? I thought that was just Roman Catholic. Calvin believed in it. Uh, just if you know your church history, those, these names might be meaningful to you, but if not, that's okay, too. Some old guys. <laughs> old guys who were, quote-unquote, Protestants believed in the ever virgin, semper virgo is the Latin term. So, um, yeah, which is kind of unusual, right? I mean, we, we don't really think about that. But Calvin believed that, uh, Zwingli believed that, I think like even Carl, I mean, pretty much everybody did. Because that was a uh, undisputed kind of Christian belief. Now, uh, we have to understand, we believe things that are not binding to salvation, or what we would say dogma, dogmatic. In fact, uh, I, I showed this to Pastor Bruzik this morning, and he was like, oh, really? Um, Martin Luther believed that Mary was without sin. It's in, it's in his writing, the Magnificat, page 327, if you want to look at it, volume 21 of Luther's works, the American edition. But he doesn't believe that, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. So what they were, they used to call this a pious belief, but not binding on the conscience. So you as Christians could believe both of those things, that she was not without sin or she was without sin. Uh, so it wasn't dogmatic. Now, of course, for Roman Catholics, that became dogma. Does anybody know? Because I think some of you were alive. You remember, that might have made the news when you were a child, if you were totally into Walter Conkright. Walter Conkright, right? Yeah. Um, I think it was 1954. Or no, I'm sorry. The Immaculate Concession was 1860 somewhere or another, so none of you were alive. <laughs> but that other, that other belief, that other belief about Mary, which we won't really talk about, but I just bring this up because um, to kind of disengage our preconceived understanding of, of who uh, Mother Mary was, um, is the uh, uh, Dormition of Mary or the Assumption of Mary? That was in 1950s, somewhere or another. Yeah, that's right. That became official dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, but not of the universal church or the you know, Catholic 
So the Eastern Orthodox don't, don't believe in the Assumption of Mary. Um, they believe in something called the Dormition of Mary, or the falling asleep of the Lord. And then they have this, it's a pious belief that, because, so the story goes, the Emperor Justinian, now try to stay awake as I, as I travel through Nerdville, um, uh, the Emperor Justinian, and I can't remember which years this was, but it's the guy that we, it's actually listed in our hymnal as a commemoration. I can't remember which day, this guy. He, uh, you know, back in those days, they liked relics. You know, so that was one of the bones or something. This is a long time ago. This isn't Middle Ages where, you know, the bones were everywhere. Um, yeah, that's what Luther's whole point was. You know, we could construct a, you know. Yeah, 18, yeah, right, exactly. So this was before that. But anyways, the whole point was is that Emperor Justinian was like, hey, I want to build a church named St. Mary. And, uh, you know, let's, let's go get the relics. Um, to the patriarch, I think of Jerusalem or Constantinople, whatever the guy was. He's like, well, we don't, we don't really have any. He's like, what? Well, we, we, uh, we went into the tomb and there wasn't a body there. This is how the story goes. So ever since the beginning, it was, uh, hey, you know, we can't find the body, so, you know, it must, it must have been taken away. Again, that was, uh, that's, that's just church tradition. Um, but, again. That's interesting that Philip Mary and them said that morning when they went to the tomb, we can't find him. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, anyways, but the Dormition of Mary... Uh, is that, it was is this actually in Lutheran calendars, and that just means the falling asleep of the Lord, which is like the culmination of, of every. Dis- I mean, that's what we all want to do, right? Is we all want to fall asleep in the Lord. Um, Mary, because of her place in Christianity, it takes on a special character, her her death, and that the Dormition of Mary is August fifteenth, and um, that just uh, just to kind of travel all the way through Nerdville. Um, there are lectionaries all the way up through uh, the early 20th century published by CPH that include CPH, Concordia Publishing House, official publishing house of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, to which we belong, um, have Marian, what we, that people talk about, Marian feasts. And August 15th was changed to St. Mary Day, which it is in our hymnal now, but uh, you, within the 20th century, it was still called the Dormition of Mary. And uh, there's a uh, St. Saint, Saint Maurice in St. Catherine, the Cathedral of St. Maurice in St. Catherine, and I think Magdeburg, Germany? There was a, he must live in Nerdville. His name is Matthew Carver. He translates old Lutheran stuff. I love it. He translated this lectionary, which is literally a bunch of Bible verses, but what's really cool about this from a historical perspective is the, the, the church calendar. And that's listed. At the Dormition of Mary's listed. Um, and I really got turned this on by the Bishop of uh, Siberia. Because he told me, I was like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, oh, yeah, it's in our church. It's in our lectionary. I'm like, what? He's like, oh, yeah, you know. And he knew that it wasn't in ours, so he just kind of directed me to it. And then now we have these documents in English now that kind of like show that. The whole point was is that the Dormition of Mary is different from the Assumption of Mary and Eastern Orthodox Catholics. Yeah, so it, it's, uh, but her, her, uh, her, her death is a, is a unique one. A- anyways, um, the, uh, uh, you see that in Reforma- or, uh, Renaissance paintings, too. Um, uh, yeah, now that I'm just on a tangent here. The, uh, there's a great painting... Boy, I'd have to go look up the name of the guy who did it. But as Jesus is taken down from the cross, he's, uh, you know, he's kind of laying sideways, and Mary is kind of fainted. It looks like she's fainted, and she's in the same position. And that's an echo of the Dormition of Mary. So, anyways, I can't remember the name of it. But it's in, it's in, the, it's in the chapel of Fort Wayne. It's really cool. Which we'll get to in a second about what, why would, why we, when we talk about Mary, uh, historically speaking, we're, we're never really talking about Mary, by the way. And the assumption where her body, oh, so, oh, I'm sorry. So, uh, you know, these guys who went to their gr- tomb, body's gone. It must, 
God must have came down and took her body up to heaven. She falls asleep. Now, the, the, whole, the whole notion of, like, where is her, her grave, which is, is actually a legitimate kind of historical question, not necessarily a theological question, a historical question, because uh, once Constantine came in power, and, and her, his mother, St. Helen, she was really adamant about building churches on these places. And the fact that there wasn't a place for St. Mary, you know, kind of, historically speaking, gives credence to the fact that, oh, we don't know where her body was. Yeah. But, but these, this is very important for us to really realize, and we're way on tangent now, uh, is um, when we talk about Mary, we actually are talking about Jesus. So a little question for you. The, the, the title of Theotokos, or Mother of God, is it about Mary or is it about Jesus? Now you know it's a trick question, so you're going to say Jesus, of course, because you are a good Sunday school people. That's exactly what it's been. All the way through history, the mother of God has been a Christological, Christ-centered title, not a, not a Mary title, primarily. And that is all goes all the way, I think he mentioned this in the writing, to the church council in Ephesus. This is where we get our creed from. This this count one of the this council we get parts of our creed from which we you know we confess every week, and it was really about Jesus, not about Mary. So, this is why as Lutherans, this immaculate conception and the assumption or dormition of Mary are really kind of secondary. There's a guy who also lives in Nerville, August Pieper, Francis. Uh, church dogmatician in the LCMS. He, uh, he also believed in the Semper Virgo, but he, uh, he also said that, um, you know, these questions are really historical questions, and they're kind of left to just, they're really not that important. So, you know, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. So that's what I would say. <laughs> to get back to the original point, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. So, um, the turning point of time is really important for us because when Jesus is born, it redefines how we understand history, most importantly, your history. You think your history begins when you are born? Your history begins when you are, well, many of you were baptized as a baby, but when you were baptized. That's the most important history. So he has a list of questions which I think are really important. What is a human being? What is the meaning and purpose of our life? And what is finally that ultimate and utterable, unutterable mystery which engulfs our being and from which we take our origin and towards which we move? These questions are important for us and they're answered precisely by Galatians 4.4. 4. In the fullness of time. Now, fullness of time, what does that mean? That is when time, if you want to talk Doctor Who language, when space and time is so full of meaning... That, what comes before and after, are defined by that. So, time is overflowing when Christ is born, or, or born a born of woman. And what's important for that is, is that, that revel, God reveals himself in the Son being born of the woman. That is, that is the answer to our question, who am I? Now, John Paul makes this document then, this, this, this uh, not document, this, this statement then, a woman is to be found at the center of this salvific event. And that's important for us because that affirms then the original male-female. Is that there is no, you can't understand who you are without including woman. Not just, just, not just for you, but for me. Again, remember, why, why is a man talking to you about being a woman? Part of it is because I want to learn what it means. So I just realized that subconsciously I just answered that question. I can't understand myself without understanding woman. All right, this is outlined precisely in Annunciation, Luke, what we read in chapel. Luke 1, 31 through 37, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and, you know, out of nowhere, right? So Mary is approached by God through his messenger, Gabriel, not on any merit of her own, but because he just showed up, because God chose her. And in that, in, in that moment, he, 
he says, hey, you're going to bear a son, and he's going to be God. And Mary like, says, well, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. Holy Spirit's going to come. And besides, you know, the one who's barren has a child six months, for nothing will be impossible with God. That, that whole scenario is a redefinition where Mary thinks, hey, I know what it is to be a virgin. I know what it also means to be a daughter of Israel. That's in the, the document. And the angel says, there's more to it than you think. So, apply it to ourselves. I think I know who I am. Or, I'll go so far as I know who I am. And God shows up and says, yeah, there's more to it. What's important for us is that what we think is impossible for us to be is, is possible for God. And that's, that's really good news for those of us who define ourselves by our past or define ourselves by some point in history, which could be currently going on. God says, not, not, not quite, there's more. There's more to it. And so what happens then to Mary is actually a, a template for each one of us. God shows up and says, uh, by the Holy Spirit, there's more to you than, than who you think. Um, which, which is always more than we think. So we, uh, you've, uh, obviously you've heard Pastor Brzezik say, the gospel is always more, and this is another example of what that means. Um, and of course, then it goes with what Dieter Bonhoeffer said earlier, is I'm, I'm not defined, uh, I don't define myself, but God does. And um, even though for Dieter Bonhoeffer, I'm in jail with, with God's identity, I'm a child of God. Um, all right, so then, so that, that's really important for us to understand is that, you know, God affirms and reorients uh, us at the beginning to, to think of what's really at the beginning is this Galatians 4.4. Okay, that, that, that really defines how we understand all of time. Okay, uh, so not only defines the beginning, but also defines where we're headed to as a people of God. All right, yeah. When I was reading this, you know, I believe that Jesus was born from Mary. Yeah, right, of course. I've always heard that, I believed it. But when I was reading it, I thought, you know, he didn't have to be born from Mary. Yeah, right. He could have appeared as a full-grown man without that. That's right. So, great, this is great. Uh, Tina, great segue, because uh, who knows if we'll get to it, is that, uh, that's exactly right. So, so uh, this is something that Christians affirm, including Lutherans, is that there is a unique thing that God is doing here, because, I'm going to try not to spend too much time in Nerdville again, but another thing is thinking in terms of faiths, Christian faiths, there's a lot of uh, religious beliefs that have God showing up in the body, incarnate, incarnated, historically. And, but, you know, they show up as a you know, full-grown person. Or, but, so what Christianity kind of testifies to is it, it, there's something unique to this. And God didn't have to use Mary, but he did. Just like God didn't have to create Adam and Eve, but he did. Why? Because, well, why? Why, why did it, Adam? And, why were Adam and Eve created? Well, yeah, okay, in the image of God, but uh, play that out a little bit more, Ali. That's right, because he loved us. Why did he? Why did he choose Mary? Because he loved Mary. So if you read. Uh, Mary's woman, but the person, so he doesn't, uh, so God's love doesn't, I mean, he loved a specific person. He loves you, you as a specific person. And what's important for us is to, is to realize is that God chooses Mary because, because. Yeah, and, and that's really, so that might be, that will be a distinctive understanding of how we understand Mary is that she, so even Martin Luther, when he says, Mary's without sin. Well, Mary's without sin because of God. She didn't do anything. 
So it, it echoes the justification of the sinner. It's in line with what our, our understanding of God does the verbs. And so God chose Mary because God chose Mary. Because he loved her. Now, does that mean he loved her more than you? No. Okay, that's the wrong question. Um, but he did choose Mary. And by choosing that, then, that means something. Like Tina just said, this means something. And we have to dig deep and find out what that means for us. So, um, uh, so what does it mean? Well, the Theotokos, this, the Theotokos is a Greek word for mother of God, or bearer of God, the bearer of God. Not bear like an animal, but like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm uh, holding or, you know, showing forth in my, yeah, okay, good. You know, bearer. It's, hard, it's a hard word for me to say. Bearer? Anyways. Did I tell you I forgot I left my Bible around in the places? I'm getting old. All right. Isn't there a Catholic saint that can say turn around turn around or something? I, there could be. I don't know. Um, but this is another great thing is that, um, you know, uh, Mary doesn't, inter- I mean, uh, Mary, we, we uh, so again, this is another thing when we talk about Mary, we get freaked out as if the Roman Catholics have the only definition of Mary. Um, Christ saved us. He's the one redeemer. Um, and Mary believes that too because Mary directs us to listen to Jesus, just like in John chapter 2. Do whatever he says. So we follow Mary in that respect. Okay? We are Lutherans. I just want to make sure we remember that. Okay? Okay. Um, we shouldn't be freaked out about talking about Mary. It's like uh, we are freaked out about talking about Zacchaeus. I mean, come on, don't worry about it. All right. Union with God. So, so Mary now, the Holy Spirit impregnates her, and now she has this very intimate relationship with God, this union with God. I mean, God's, God's growing inside her. That's, a, that's, that's unique. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, Martin Luther will say so much as to say is, uh, of course this has to be by grace alone. I mean, who could think of what it takes to become the mother of God? That's a true statement. I mean, who, who would, yeah. And so that actually echoes John Paul in this statement. He says, you know, Mary is a, is a good Jew, uh, children of Israel would, would never imagine God being inside her. So, uh, um, so God's doing something very profound. All right, anyways, uh, so uh, Mary is a representative and archetype of the whole human race. This is really important for us. So she represents the humanity which belongs to all human beings, both men and women. So each one of us, through baptism, right, receives the Holy Spirit and now bears Christ. Uh, a couple of weeks ago at a confirmation retreat, we, uh, we gave away our Bearing Christ notebooks. I have a bear suit. I say John has a bear suit, I should say, uh, to demonstrate this. Mary was there. Does anyone in this room? Uh, Holly probably seen the bear suit, but all right, yeah, great. Uh, it was the soul, It was to teach this this whole thing to high school kids is that we're all we're all like Mary and we bear Christ. Uh, it eventually became more about the suit than about being a disciple, but that's beside the point. Um, but we're, we we all bear Christ, and this is really uh, a great thing. As we, we think about this, is that Mary, so uh, if we get to it, but in the Book of Concord, this is, again, this document that makes us Lutherans. This is kind of what sets us apart, uh, you know, kind of defines our confession as Lutherans. Within the Book of Concord, and I list a bunch of quotes there um, from different translations, uh, it's clear to say that Mary is like the ultimate disciple. This is the disciple we all want to be like. Okay? Not just for women, but for men too. And, and this, is, this is why she has such a high place all the way up through Christian history. is because of what happens in the Annunciation. 
in, in or the Annunciation, Luke chapter one. Christ comes. I mean, God, God, you know, through Gabriel, gives this message. She, you know, she's like, whoa, that's like it's crazy. How, you know, how can that be? Um, he tells her, and he says, well, let it be unto me. So what's great is that even what sounds impossible, she says, okay. Which is the definition of faith. Faith what? Agrees with what God says. Um, and so that's why Mary's really instructive for each one of us. And hence the dignity of women in the church is very important for both men and women. Now, we'll eventually get to it, but um, that's why Mary is like an image of the church in general. And as a man, as part of the church, I still, I still I have, I have this part, or I have this calling to be like Mary, to be, if you want to put it this way, to be like a woman. <laughs> um, and that is really kind of unique in kind of culture, right? culture, and even the church is understood as what a very patriarchal kind of institution. But, if we look at it in terms of, in terms of the, the biblical narrative and the turning point of time, Mary is, is, is it plays a very important part at the, at the center of it all. So this is why um, you know, uh, most highly favored lady, uh, that's from uh, Boy, him, the angel Gabriel. Um, then uh, there's a bunch of other hymns that really extol Mary as like the the one. Uh, we sing them. You know, it's kind of funny. We you know, can we sing the songs in church? And you kind of like just blow by and be like, hey, it's a nice tune, you know. All right, and Lord be with you. Yeah, okay, great. You know, you just kind of keep moving on with whatever's going on in the liturgy. But you got it. Takes take some time to kind of take a break at it. Um, uh, in fact, uh, God made inf- made manifest. Uh, we just sing it. Manifest. Now the ri- the original language is is a little bit more fleshy. Um, and then there's a verse about Mary in, in that one too, because it's uh, even though it's a verse about Mary, it's a verse about God made manifest, God in flesh, which we will hopefully get to. Surely. Are there some faiths that put more emphasis on Mary as being a disciple than Oh, good question. Uh, you know, I, 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 uh, officially, I don't think so. Yeah, surely that's a great question because uh, uh, being a, the mother of God is, is the highest title for Mary, the most important title, because of its Christological connection. It, but by the way, so let's. Uh, I should get back to this. Um, what does the Mother of God mean? It means that God was born two natures, one person. It confesses the two natures of Christ, the both human and divine. How this all came about was there was a guy named Nestorius, who basically divided the two natures in the one person. So it's kind of like two boards being kind of glued together. You could, you could separate them. And Christian history said, no, there's one Christ, two natures, and where they both, they both are playing together. They both play together. The fullness of Christ is always together. Okay, um, so, if you were to stress the disciple of discipleship of Mary or disciple of Mary over and against the Mother of God, that would be a problem. So I don't, I don't think that would happen. This is, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but that doesn't negate how Mary is kind of the ultimate disciple. Yeah, because she says yes to God's kind of impossible word, the good news. But remember, the good news is impossible. God loves you in spite of your sin. God loves you not because of what you've done, and God doesn't stop loving you because of what you've done or haven't done. God loves you because his son, for the sake of Christ. 
Now, first of all, that should be very surprising. Just like Mary's response. <laughs> Holy smokes, you, you serious? You want, you, you want to have a relationship with me? Of course, she says, how can this be? Because I'm a, I'm a virgin. Our response usually isn't like that. It's more like, thank God that you love me and in spite of my sin, you saved me. Um, so, so, uh, so the mo- mother, sh- you know, God, uh, Mary being the mother of God is not an- antithetical towards her being a disciple, but it doesn't, doesn't, it, 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 being a disciple is not above being a mother of God. That, that's the important, most important title because it confesses the two natures of Christ. Her discipleship is an example for us and then is regulated to teaching about what it means to be a Christian. So do you see the difference? Mother of God teaches us about Christ. Her discipleship teaches us about being a Christian. I mean, they're, they're connected, right? I mean, you can't separate them. I mean, the more you learn about Christ, the more you'll learn about being a Christian. But you can't put the one before the other because then it turns it into works, uh, works or a law. Oh, in order for me to be a Christian, I've got to be like this. That, that, that's, that's secondary to good works flow from faith. All right, now what's important for us, though, is that um, the, uh, uh, what, what's uh, interesting about this is that not only is she uh, archetype for every Christian, but then she also, uh, this highlights this form of union with God which belongs uniquely to woman, and that's motherhood. We'll get to this later, and I already said it last week, is that Mary, regardless of your, if, you're, if you're a biological mother or you're not, you do, you're a, every, every woman's a mother, <laughs> okay? Because everyone has this, every woman has this calling of being a mother in the faith. So, um, I think I said this last week, and I think men also have this calling, but I haven't really figured that out in terms of how to say it without sounding really bizarre. So, um, but, but that, that's important. And we'll get to that stuff. We'll get to that later. But he, he actually introduces that again real quickly. Yes, Krista. No, I haven't said anything like that, Krista. And I, I really want to make sure that you don't, you don't misunderstand me because, as I said, the mother of God is really about Jesus. So if we talk about Mary, we're really talking about Jesus. Because this is important for us, too. It, it, is, it is in, uh, you know, uh, the last two weeks and the next four weeks at Pastor Chats with the infants all the way up through pre-K, we're, gonna, we're looking at an icon of uh, the Theotokos, Mary. She's teaching us about how to pray. Well, the thing is, though, is that the more you dwell upon that icon, the more you will, or who are you going to look at? So you went, oh, well, mother's who in there. Penelope, do you remember who, who, who does Jesus, who does Mary point to in that picture at Pastor Chats? That's right. So the more you look at Mary, the more you're going to be directed towards Jesus. Uh, we're running late. Volume 21 in Luther Works. I'm sure you can get it on the internet. I don't know. Martin Luther writes about the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices within me. Okay. Go ahead and read that and you will find out that he says of Mary, Mary does not want us to look at her above Christ in fact, he will, uh, I, th- I think it's in the Magnificat or else it's in the Book of Concord somewhere, where the public opinion of Mary was she was higher than Christ. Now, do you know why? What did they think about Christ? Th- this, is, this will explain Martin Luther's writings, why he was so upset about how they, that people were revering Mary. They thought Mary was the loving one and Christ was the what? The judge. Christ is here to kick your butt. Well, why would you want to go to Christ if all you're going to get is judgment? Of course you're going to go to Mother Mary. And so Luther's like, that, no, that's wrong. Christ is the loving one. In fact, Mary's loving too, great. But if you listen to Mary, she's going to, she's going to tell you to go to Jesus. In fact, Luther in the Magnificat will say, Mary wants to go, wants 
us to go through her to Christ. Now, I'm a little, a little uncomfortable with that kind of language, but it just shows that he's really, he's got this high devotion to Mary because the more you look at Mary, the more you're just going to be, hey, okay, let's, let's, let's look at Jesus. So, yeah, so thanks, Krista, for bringing that up, but I really want to make sure you're not hearing what I'm not saying. Um, so what's important, though, too, in the Annunciation is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, it releases us from sin. And now this is where, this is where we have to get a little, we've already entered Nerdville a couple times, so who cares, I guess. Um, the Pope will say, or the John Paul will say, she exercises her free will. Well, Lutherans and Roman Catholics have a little different understanding of that, but she does exercise her free will. But free will means being set free by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't make a big deal about that, which we as Lutherans, we will want to. But that's important for us is that when, when, uh, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes to us and sets us free and we... And we say, you know, yes, it's not against our will. It's not like God comes and says, you are going to believe in me or else. So this is really important for us. He, what he wants to do is he wants to make a big deal about her being a subject, not an object. I think I talked about this last week. Is that when God, so you are an agent of God. You are, you are as uh, the Apostle Paul talks about, co-workers with Christ. So the Annunciation validates Mary's person or woman's person as being a subject, as being an actor. This will come up very important for us because the, the prevailing image, because uh, uh, it comes directly into the next section, which we won't get today, is um, uh, when she, uh, so, so when Jesus reigns like as a you know, king, he's a servant, he's service. Now, the world will understand being a servant as what? As an object. You're, you're the one who, you know, you're a doormat and you just got to do whatever I want. God defines it differently. When you are a servant, you're precisely a subject. You, you're the doer of things. So what happens, especially as it's attached to women, is that women, the, the, the idea of traditional values, for those on the radio, traditional, in quotes, air quotes, is uh, being passive. Oh, women should just be passive. You know, kind of be quiet. Maybe see, not heard. That is not what, what's going on here. And John Paul makes a big deal about this, is that when Mary, is, when the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, she becomes a subject. She becomes the actor, co-worker with Christ. She's been set free to be who she is. Now, I remember last week, and we didn't make, because we were at the end of the time, just like we are right now, is um, when God says to Adam and Eve, subdue creation, he's not talking just environmental, you know, go make sure you compost, take care of the environment. He's talking precisely, man and women have a very important role in culture, in science. And so, when, this is part of what happens when Christ, or when God comes to us, and the Holy Spirit sets us free to be who we are, we, we become these agents in the world, these actors, these subjects, and we are now fulfill our, we're beginning to fill our calling, as, you know, our supreme calling. Now, that's very Lutheran. We have three offices. Um, well, let's say for me, um, I'm, a, I'm a son, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor. For some reason, that made me think about speaking in a strange accent. Um, so, uh, you know, but, but for Luther, the, the family or the familial relationships are primary to who we are. So we, I have an office within my family. I have an off. when I say office, a position, they uh, uh, find your spot and work it. That's what we, you know, in St. John, we've talked about that. So we have a spot within our family, a spot within our church, and a spot within society. And last week, the point was about our, our spot in society. None of, I mean, we make these distinctions. They're not separate, by the way. I mean, it's not like you, they never, we want to make sure we make distinctions, not separations. Is that, um, so when Mary is confronted by Gabriel, confronted, uh, spoken to by Gabriel, and she 
she says, let it be unto me, you know, as the Lord has said, she's now finding out what this, what this is meaning, like her, her, her spot and working it. Each one of us had that spot. So one of us could have our spot in culture where we're a scientist or, you know, an artist or whatever. I don't know, whatever you are. Um, you know, and then, of course, you know, but, but Luther, uh, John Paul said it, and Luther would always say it, every woman is a mother, so the, the familial aspect. Um, it, well, and, then, and then primary, of course, your station is Christian, baptized. I am baptized. So, um, yeah. Okay, uh, so yeah, so the point is, is that uh, so when Christ comes and tells us he sets us free and then we exercise our, our will... But our will is always defined according to, not ourselves, but according to God's word. So I should have been a little bit more uh, distinct in that language. So the point is that Mary still acts as a subject even if her will is, is bound by sin because the Holy Spirit's power releases her from that bond to, I, uh, bond is bound, uh, to live freely as a child of God. All right, so what we find out is, is that what John Paul actually talks about is not really anything different than what uh, we've already confessed as Lutherans, and I have some quotes there from uh, the, the Book of Concord. And then I have some uh, long quotes that I didn't get a chance to summarize on pages 3 and 4. And you're welcome just to go ahead and read that. that was, uh, that's just a uh, nice little thing about how we as Lutherans have a very high view of Mary, historically speaking, but unfortunately we've kind of lost that. And a recovery of that is going to be really helpful for us as we kind of figure out who we are as people. And that's really based on Galatians 4.4. 4. Um, any questions? So we actually didn't get through... Go ahead and ask any questions, sorry. I... Donna. Um, did Luther believe that Mary was um, sinless or sin without sin in regards to her response to the angel? Is that when she referred to her? Right. Yeah, no. Uh, this is where Luther is kind of strange is that he, uh, over the course of his life, he kind of had a couple of views. So it's really hard to say def- definitively. But. Um, the one thing he never deviated from the fact was is that if she's sinless, it's because by God's grace, it's by faith alone, and and that's uh, that's in that that's echoed in the Magnificat, but it's also uh, echoed in a variety of other places where he, um, it, it wasn't just that she was sinless at the moment that he got visited or she got visited, but she was sinless since her birth. Yeah, but. Uh, but again, that would be something where I would say no. I mean, I don't have, we don't have to believe that. And uh, but it, it, you know, why? Why is that? Why would he believe that? Is to stress the fact that when God or when Christ comes into her, He purifies her. And then I wonder what He did with Matthew one twenty-five about her being a virgin. You know, because oh, you mean uh, always a virgin? Yeah, right. So, so the the, the other thing was is that she, so the big thing was in John. When Jesus is at the foot of the cross and she is given to, to John, if, if she had other sons, why didn't Jesus just give her to his, his quote-unquote brothers? My brothers, uh, not, uh, her brothers, brethren, really. Brethren, yeah. So, so the Greek word, yeah. The Greek word it more often is translated as uh, more than just a biological, hey, my brother Hans and my brother Justin. They, it was. They didn't believe in him. But when when Jesus says brothers, then they didn't believe in him. Uh, his mother didn't believe in him either, according to your, to to that verse too. So which that is problematic when Mary's at the foot of the cross. So, yeah. Um. So that wouldn't define their existence, Krista. Yeah. Yeah, he could have. He could have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, th- this is one of those things. It's not. It's not part of our doctrine, but it's. It's the more common common belief is that Mary remained a virgin after Jesus' birth, uh, which might you know sound crazy to you guys. Whoa, 
Why would people do that? Again, it has to do with the Bible. Call me crazy. But, you know, we want to listen to the Bible. And, uh, and the fact is that the, the logic is, is this Greek word for brothers is, is more inclusive than exclusive. But, theoretically, you could define it as exclusive, meaning just my older brother Hans, my, old, my younger brother Justin. But over the course of the New Testament, it, it's more inclusive to cousins and yeah. Yeah. Go to Matthew and trying to decipher whether or not um, Joseph did not know her until yeah right um, that uh, yeah that that doesn't mean that she, he actually yeah yeah um, the other the other of course then the other the other yeah so then the other the other document is the uh, John and then the fact is is that um, where was Joseph around. And so, there's another there's another uh, thing about Alpheus, which Alpheus. Uh, so one of the one of the disciples was a son of Alpheus, and the tradition is that so when J- Mary was given to John, they uh, John and Mary moved to Ephesus, and so who is this James, the brother of our Lord? And that that the 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 thing is is that that James is actually Elpheus, is related to Elpheus, not not to Mother Mary. So, um, so as um, John John and Mary are are kind of they move out of Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, is the the first pastor or overseer in Jerusalem. So the question is, why isn't Mary? Why wasn't Mary in Jerusalem if? James was, in fact, the son of Mary as the brother, which would go against what Chris said, is that, in fact, he did have a, I mean, according to that logic, is he actually did have a brother that was faithful, biological brother, but unless he wasn't a biological brother. But that's beside the point. Anyways, uh, those, are, those are not really that important. The important thing about Mary is that she is the mother of God because it confesses the two natures of Christ, and it also confesses her identity in relationship to Christ, which is uh, defi- defines who we are in our identity, and um, what we find out is how we how we actually understand that is in terms of service, which we so the end of part two. There's two parts in part two: Theotokos and then service. That that's the part that we haven't gotten to today, and we do need to get to that because of this prevailing perspective that the church thinks women should be passive and kind of doormats. That's precisely the opposite of what's going on in this section, is that women are to be actors, subjects. Subjects mean in the grammatical sense of the word, not in like the... the yes, thank you very much, Carol. Um, but... The doers of verbs. That's what I mean by subjects. Okay. And we really got to get to that because without that understanding then, this language of our identity as women is going to make no sense to the world because all they're going to hear is, you just want to go back to the old days where you were barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And that's ex- that is the opposite of what we're talking about. That is anti-Christian. Okay. Well, I mean, hey, if you want to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, that's great too, I guess. But I mean, because I did, I did watch The Parent Trap. That's a great movie, and she was barefoot, was not pregnant though, and, but she was in the kitchen, and she, you know, she loved that. And she was an actor; she was a subject doing that. Yes, the original one. Yes, uh, Shirley. We gotta go though. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you need to read any farther than the section that we've already gone. I, by the way, if you really want to, though, read the whole thing. Just keep, keep reading it. But as, as a, a topic for next week, we're, not, we're still haven't gotten out of that section two. Yeah, um, because, you know, we still have a lot of, we, there's a lot of things to cover. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.